No, I'm excited to be here this morning. Anytime I get a chance to, to share, you know, I really do look forward to it. I probably sweat it a little bit more than I should because I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. Um, I blame that on my dad, but it is what it is. So um, we're going to spend some time this morning kind of going over a few things. Now, I have the benefit that Dennis doesn't. See, Dennis gets into a series when he says, hey, you're preaching. I just get to go off of whatever. And so usually what I pull from is whatever's going on in here, which could be anything, right? And so I get the joy of just being able to kind of build on some thoughts and explore them with you, and I, I enjoy every bit of it. So I look forward to it. So before we get started, let's just take a moment and let's pray together. God, we come before you today, and we're just again thankful for your word. We're thankful we can be in your house. We're thankful for, again, the work that you've done on the cross. And uh, Lord, as we reflect this morning just on the events maybe that have passed over the last few weeks when it comes to the resurrection, we just pray that you would just speak to us, you would just reveal yourself to us, and that you would really challenge us this morning. And so we just pray all this in your name. Amen. So a couple things kind of over the last month or so have kind of pulled together in my mind, and so I have to explore them. That's just how I do things. And so we start with a few weeks ago, we had the Living Last Supper. Who was here for the Living Last Supper? who was in the Living Last Supper. <laughs> some, some here even had to be in it. Um, and it was a powerful, powerful presentation, if you had a chance to be a part of it. Um, but there was one individual that kind of actually stood out to me a little bit this year. Um, it's a little different, I guess, than the past years. And do you guys remember Chase Johnston's character, the Living Last Supper? Remember who he was? Thomas, Doubting Thomas. So that kind of jumped out at me this year. And Thomas the disciple, we call him Doubting Thomas. And then, of course, after we had the Living Last Supper, we had a little bit of time passed, and then we celebrated what? Easter, that's right. So we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And interestingly, I found that in the Gospel of John, there's actually a collision of these two. You have Thomas, and you have the resurrection of Jesus, and they kind of collide. And so, of course, I said, I've got to explore this a little bit more. So this morning, we're going to look at Thomas and the resurrection. And I believe we're going to see some really critical information that God wants us to hold on to as we move forward in our day-to-day -day life. And I also think we might even find ourselves being challenged, maybe encouraged, and compelled to reevaluate, maybe solidify our personal beliefs when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. So before we get started on that, I just want to answer one question we have to answer first. Why is the resurrection such an important event? Might be a dumb question, but there's actually a reason I ask it. And I think it can be summed up in Paul's words, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile you are still in your sins. And then he goes on to say this in the following verses. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I read that and I think, wow. Not only is this the cornerstone of our entire faith, but if we're wrong, then we're a bunch of sorry people sitting here this morning. Jesus' resurrection is not something that has to be taken lightly. We can't understand this lightly. It's arguably the most important event in the Christian faith. I would even say that it goes as far as saying that it's the most important event in human history by which everything in this world and the next hinges. 
That's how important this event is. There's a part of a sermon by a pastor, a reverend from Los Angeles at about 1800. And you've probably heard this. It's been turned into somewhat of a poem, but I'm going to share just a portion of his message. He's reflecting on Jesus, and he says, Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village, worked as a carpenter until he was 30. Then for three years, he was a preacher. He never owned a home, never wrote a book, never held an office, never had a family, never went to college, never traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born. He never did any of the things that we usually say accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And 19 long centuries have come and gone, and today he is a centerpiece of the human race. And he says, I'm far within my mark when I say that of all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Now I would suggest to you, it's the events of the resurrection that set this one solitary life apart from everyone else. So we're going to look today at John. Chapter 20 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to start in verse 24. It says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You've probably heard this story before. The late Dr. James Sire, he was a Christian speaker, author. He wrote a book called Why Should Anyone Believe Anything at All? So if you want some reading to put you to sleep at night, there's one for you, right? It's a great book, actually. He intended to outline the reasons people believe things. I mean, that's the whole point of the book. And so he creates this comprehensive list of reasons. Some were social reasons, parents, friends, Society, you know, culture, they say something, and so therefore people believe it. Others, it was a psychological reason. You had people that just believe things because it makes them feel a certain way. It gave them purpose, maybe identity. Some were even religious, surprise, surprise. Some people believe things because a scripture says it, a pastor says it, or a church says it. And, you know, he concluded that all of them alone were poor reasons to believe anything. He concluded with a final reason he called the philosophical reason. The reasons answered these two questions. What was consistent with reality and what was the best explanation of all the evidence? That's the reason to believe something. Now, we tend to give Thomas a hard time 
because he demanded proof with his hands before he would believe. And while we give Thomas his hard time, we actually give the other disciples a pass. But you see, we forget that eight days earlier, they had experienced exactly what Thomas had not. I'm going to rewind back to verse 19 of chapter 20 in John. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Eight days later, fast forward. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now let's think of this from Thomas's perspective for a moment. Okay? He's traveled with Jesus for years now, and he's seen some amazing things take place. He saw Jesus raise someone from the dead in Lazarus. However, based on what he understood of the world, the reality of the world he lived in, its natural laws, human reasoning, individual experience, it would not be unreasonable to believe that people who are killed cannot bring themselves back to life. One question Thomas may have asked when questioned on this may have very well been, well, who will bring the miracle if the miracle worker is dead? Jesus said on multiple occasions before his crucifixion what he sums up in Matthew 16, verse 21. He says this, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Yet it is within this struggle of evidence and the claim that Jesus made that we find faith is either established or destroyed. One question I've asked during my pursuit of God is this. Does God really expect me to believe what he says without any evidence that it's true? Is that a reasonable demand? In short, God is God. He can demand whatever he wants. However, God is the very standard of reason and what reasonable is and what right is. So does God expect us to believe without evidence? Let's go back a little bit. Do you realize that one of the reasons Abraham of the Old Testament is such an important and critical figure in the faith, not just the Jewish faith, but our faith, is because of his personal position in regards to the evidence when considering resurrection? Maybe you hadn't thought about that. He was not a man of blind belief without evidence, as some people might claim. He had plenty of evidence. And he therefore concluded with faith that God could do more than he had seen him previously do maybe even something he had never done before. So when Abraham took his son Isaac and he bound him on the altar, intending to sacrifice him to the Lord, he did this with the belief that God could raise Isaac from the dead. He held on to the promises God had made to him about making his offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, establishing through his offspring a great nation. This is why Abraham had such great faith, because he believed God on his word, coupled with what he had seen God previously do. So there is fact number one from the resurrection I'm going to give you this morning. Belief should be based on evidence. Even Abraham had been given evidence that what God had told him was actually true. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah for a moment. There's some evidence. Or maybe even go back to the moment God made a promise to Abraham about his future and the future of his offspring. 
In fact, we even find the evidence recorded in Genesis 15. Okay, I'm going to go over a little bit of it with you. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 7. He, being God, also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now first, do you notice what Abraham said? How can I know that I will take possession of it? In other words, how can I know that what you're saying is actually true? So God decides to allow the miraculous. Abraham cuts a bunch of animals in half and sets up this area for this event. Now, let me explain this a little bit because it sounds a little strange. Cutting the animals in half was done with the intent. They would take them, they'd cut them in half, and they would set them apart. And the people that were entering into a contract would actually walk between the animals that had been cut in half. And the reason they did that, it was with the intent to proclaim as the contracting parties passed through the animals cut, if I break this agreement, let me be this done to me. Be like these animals. A serious commitment to enter into this type of contract. Okay, so this is what the instructions are. And then this happens. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 17. It says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I give this land. See, God's word and promise accompanied with evidence for the purpose of our belief. See, God is consistent with his actions and doesn't expect us to just blindly follow. In fact, Jesus even states in Matthew 15, 14, when he's talking about the Pharisees, he says, leave them. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So how would you know the guide was blind? You'd have to gather some evidence to make the determination, right? Right? See, God confirmed the words of his mouth through miraculous events. These were not because God needed to flex his muscles, but rather for our unbelieving hearts and our minds. We who live in this natural world, we understand and really base everything off of the limitations of its boundaries, its natural laws. But now, having been exposed to a power that can't be naturally explained, it's almost as if there's something supernatural, right? And these supernatural events or miracles were for the sole purpose of giving those present actual evidence to support the verbal claims. People had firsthand experience and evidence with the supernatural events. And there's a reason God is consistently giving us evidence to support his words. He's about action based on the truth, and he desires us to follow the example. In other words, let your actions reflect the truth of what you know to be true so people will be willing to listen and trust what you tell them. In essence, you become almost the evidence yourself for the divine being. It's an amazing lesson to be witnessed. God did the very thing he instructs. He took actions, which is our evidence, to support his words and therefore now has every right to say, will you trust me? with what I say. Do we need evidence every day in order to keep our faith going? Is it possible that what God has given us in the past is evidence enough to trust him right here today, 2019? 
You know, Jesus provided the disciples as well as thousands of others with ample evidence to who he was and is. In one instance, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and crowds tells a layman to pick up his mat and go home. Dennis preached on this not too long ago. And after this took place, it was after he told the man his sins were forgiven. Do you remember? And the basis for the miracle of the healing of the man was to confirm with evidence that what he had said about the man's sins being forgiven were in fact true. So do you realize that Jesus could have resurrected, had taken his seat in heaven without ever once having appeared to the disciples or anybody else? He could have. Sin would still have been forgiven. Death would still be defeated. He could have given us only an empty tomb to explain, but he gave us much more. And there was purpose in that. It was to show people that their unbelief in him or their belief in him as God was not misplaced. It was to prove his word to be true. It was to restore hope in him, restore hope that there is eternal life. And it was to inspire people to pursue God, even if it meant giving up their own earthly lives. Now you have to remember this. The event of the resurrection confirms that Christ holds the authority over life and death, and therefore anyone whom he deems acceptable will live, although their life may end in this natural world, they will live on in another. So how do we become acceptable? By belief. John 3.16, probably familiar with it, it says this at one point, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, an encounter with the resurrected Jesus led insignificant, uneducated, poor, dismissed men to change every corner of this planet. Without regard for their own well-being, without any promise or evidence of personal gain through wealth or fame, these men faced rejection, persecution, torture, and even death, all because they would not deny what they had seen and heard. Jesus was alive. He is alive. And all their faith stems from this event that we're discussing this morning. And hopefully ours does too. You know what's interesting? Even Thomas, doubting Thomas, died a martyr in India. Ironically, his death being recorded as coming from being attacked by soldiers who pierced him with spears. Thomas was unique because he was not present at the first appearance of Jesus to the disciples, and therefore, with testimony alone, he was skeptical. Now, you and I may not have been at the first appearance of Christ in that room. We're having to do what Thomas initially had difficulty doing, come to a conclusion by hearing the testimony of another. Thomas was not willing to even trust only his eyes. He needed to touch, and not just touch, but touch those specific marks on Jesus' body and the spear mark in his side. Thomas didn't just want to see. He wanted hands-on evidence. He wanted proof that Jesus was alive and that who, in fact, was before him was actually Jesus. Now, one common question I've asked people over the years during my discussions about the resurrection is this. What evidence would you need to believe that Jesus is alive today? And you can guess what the response is most of the time. People claim, well, I just need to see him with my own eyes. Considering the day we're in, you know, there, it does make a lot of sense. We live in a culture where there's a lot of misinformation. 
it's tucked away in information and we have to try to figure it out. We don't know more than half the time what to believe because of all the tainted information thrown at us, right? So this is a double-edged sword. Because in one hand, we struggle to believe because we have to be skeptical today. But on the other hand, people within our culture require more from you and I before they will believe in the hope that we have. In many cases, there are Christians I've talked with who can't even tell me why they believe the resurrection to be true. They don't know why. They just believe it because they do. And that unfortunately leads to Christians being viewed as a bunch of superstitious blind sheep who need fairy tale crutches for their daily life and a people who will believe anything to make themselves feel better. This should not be so. If we claim to believe Jesus is alive, we should be sure we know why we believe that to be true. Which leads me to fact number two I'm going to give you. The evidence must be evaluated individually. Thomas was not willing to trust the simple testimony of others. He demanded hard evidence before he believed. Now, this is where Thomas makes a big mistake, and the criticism is justified. It's one thing to ask for evidence before belief. It's another to demand a certain kind of evidence before you believe. The reality of life is this. We don't always get to decide what kind of evidence we will receive. We have to determine what we believe based on the evidence that comes our way, however unexpected it may be. But let's make no mistake. God expects us to individually use our minds to evaluate the facts Consider the evidence, pursue the truth, and come to a conclusion. Unfortunately, some in our world, maybe even here today, will dismiss this call to investigate for the sole reason that they're afraid of what they might find. Jeremiah 29.13 says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. A challenge to ask the questions, to pursue them with your whole heart, to find the truth. Are we asking the questions with the desire because we want to know the truth? Or are we afraid of what we will find so we just don't ask? Are we afraid of what it might cost us? What it might demand of us to do with our own lives if something is true? I should remind you that from God's perspective, we've had all the evidence in his existence and interactions with this world before the miraculous events of the resurrection ever took place. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that men are what? Without excuse. One individual who did not believe in God stated that if he died and found out God existed, he would simply tell God that he had not given him enough evidence to believe in him. What an arrogant statement. I just had one thought to consider. What if God disagrees? Let's make no mistake on this fact. Number three, each person must come to a conclusion. Of all the events in human history, none carry the potential benefits or potential consequences of what you believe on this one. Regardless of what one feels about the resurrection, everyone must make a decision on what they believe about the actual event from a factual standpoint. Did it actually happen? Because if Jesus actually resurrected and is alive today, every human being, past, present, and future, is subject to his authority. 
Even the individual indifferent to the event who fails to make a decision one way or the other is in fact still making a decision with the potential of eternal consequences. Former Focus on the Family Vice President Del Tackett, he was reflecting on the reality of how people come to conclusions and it couldn't be more true. He said this, he was at a football game one afternoon. He sat in the stands and something amazing happened. A pass was thrown from the quarterback to the receiver which required the receiver to dive flat out into the end zone to catch it. And as he landed, this amazing thing happened. Half the people in the crowd jumped to their feet and yelled, touchdown, while the other half yelled, incomplete. Dr. Tackett was baffled how people looking at the exact same thing could come to exact opposite conclusions. Earlier in John's book, he answers this. In John 3.19, he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. What Jesus asked here of Thomas is the same thing he asks every one of us. He inquires if we can set aside our preconceived ideas, our agendas, our selfish pursuits for purpose of looking solely at the facts and just what's laid out before you, make a decision. Thomas had to give up the idea that people who die cannot come back from the dead on their own. In one moment, an encounter with the resurrected Jesus undid everything he thought he knew. Jesus was alive and touchable, interactable, and maybe most importantly, exactly who he said he was. And so Thomas's response, response after touching Jesus then makes sense when he says, My Lord and my God. So what do you need to believe? What evidence would you need to make a decision to pursue Christ like the disciples did? Is it possible that we have all that we need in history and with the Bible in hand? In regard to the resurrection in Jesus himself, unbelief isn't the lack of facts, but in the evil nature of our selfish hearts, because the evidence is there. Jesus sends his exchange with Thomas very simply. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So that's my question. Do you believe? I'm going to leave you with this this morning from Romans 10, verse 9. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that you have given us all the information we could possibly need to know that you are who you say you are. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can trust your word, that it's powerful. And, Lord, we just thank you that you've called us to be your God or to, for you to be our God, Lord, and us to be your people. And so, Lord, we just thank you that we can reflect this morning on the resurrection, on the work that you did. And we pray, Lord, that we would just hold it in our minds and our hearts every day, and I pray, Lord, if we are not comfortable being able to give an account for the hope we have of this resurrection, we would pursue it with our whole heart and you would reveal it to us as we look for the facts. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have time to do that this morning. We pray you would be with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.